This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 334, All Roads Go Through Malta. When Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany in September of 1939, they did so knowing they were both behind Germany in terms of actually being ready for war. This would result in a string of Axis victories at first, and indeed that prediction bared out. But it also meant some territory would have to be abandoned without a fight such as the Channel Islands, Guernsey, and Jersey, along with the smaller nearby islands. But did that also mean Malta? Admiral Horatio Nelson himself, a British hero, knowing the value of Malta in dominating the central Mediterranean Sea, said 140 years earlier, I hope we shall never give it up. To which Admiral Andrew Cunningham of the British Royal Navy, the current C&C Mediterranean, as of May 1939, heartily agreed. Yet it was only 60 miles away from Italian territory. Fortunately for the Allies, when they declared war against Germany and Berlin replied in kind, Mussolini wisely stayed neutral. The question of Malta's status in terms of her defense did not have to be answered today. But that day was coming. For the last few years leading up to June 10, 1940, the day that Mussolini finally jumped off the fence and declared war against Britain and France, London within itself had gone back and forth about the possibility of holding on to Malta. Of course, the majority of the politicians and military wanted to keep their connection to the little but vital Mediterranean island, but the real question was, was it even possible? until the United Kingdom was actively ready to defend it against all comers. Which meant Malta and those on it, the Maltese with various backgrounds, and the British or Commonwealth troops stationed there would have to endure a siege. This idea seemed strange to some who studied the Second World War. How could there be a siege in the 20th century? What with the Blitzkrieg and other tactics and strategies using modern weapons. But a siege it would be, because, as it sat, almost in the center of a line, 
drawn between the Suez Canal and Gibraltar, both British-controlled, the Axis would have to actively take and occupy the three islands, or else the British would be able to use them to harass German and Italian ships heading to North Africa, or to the western end of the Middle East, or to Egypt itself. But when Italy first entered the war, the Axis, like the Allies, had other priorities over Malta. Yet that did not mean it could not be bombed into submission or surrounded by the Italian fleet, thus negating its use. To be sure, Admiral Andrew Brown Cunningham, or as he was called, ABC, worked hard to make sure that neither one of those options would happen. ABC had been in the Mediterranean for much of his professional life, starting with commanding a destroyer in the Mediterranean during the Great War. He had practically memorized its coastlines and destinations, even the Kansim, the dry, hot wind that comes from Africa, or the Sirocco, the uncomfortably humid air that also comes from the south, and how they both affected the Mediterranean waters. He also knew that, with the rising tension between Britain and Nazi Germany during the second half of the 1930s, along with London's cutting of military expenditures after the Great War, the British Royal Navy would be at a disadvantage in any naval actions against the Italians, to which ABC's solution was to fight aggressively, but intelligently. And it seemed that his theory would be put to the test. It was just a matter of when. As for defending Malta to the last, the majority of the Maltese felt the same as ABC. Though there had been moments of tension between the Anglican British leadership and the Catholic locals, theirs was a mutually beneficial relationship, but more on that in a moment. Even before the first bomb fell on Malta, Cunningham and the British at large almost lost the island and the two other smaller islands with it, Gozo and Comino. What happened was, though ABC hated paperwork so much, most of his orders were single sentences, still, in October of 1938, he was appointed Deputy Chief of the Naval Staff of the Admiralty. The new First Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Roger Backhouse, had plucked ABC from the Mediterranean, as he needed a fighter, one who knew intimately what Mussolini was already calling Mare Nostrum, or Our Sea. As it was 1938, London was in a frenzy to rearm, for war was coming. Everything had to be updated, and a lot of it produced. But as there was only so much money, everything had to be prioritized, which begged the question, what about Malta? As much as ABC wanted to test himself against the Italians and the Germans, he found himself battling instead with agents of the CID, or Committee for Imperial Defense, for funds. As it had been 35 years since the Wright brothers had first achieved flight and the world's militaries had incorporated fighters and bombers into their arsenals, the question of anti-air defenses was paramount. In 1935, Malta, 17 miles wide by 9 miles, had 24 AA guns, but these were obsolete after three years. Such was the pace of technology. So the Navy, with Cunningham leading the way, pressed for an update to which the RAF and Army 
disagreed. Besides, again, there was no way to shield Malta from the Italians without a major commitment, and that was not going to happen, since the home island's defenses still needed beefing up themselves. Still, in 1935, London's best chance of avoiding this threat to Malta and its other Mediterranean possessions was to separate Rome from Berlin, as Prime Minister Chamberlain and his predecessor Stanley Baldwin sought to win over the bombastic Italian leader from the mesmerizing Hitler. But the winner of that contest was Hitler, as Mussolini helped the Spanish nationals, along with the Germans, in the Spanish Civil War. Next, when Italy invaded Albania in April of 1939, the loser, London, was confirmed. The next month brought the Pact of Steel by the two far-right leaders. Whenever war came, it would be Berlin and Rome against London and the Maltese people. Not that those tough people were not used to sieges. As for Admiral Cunningham, he would leave the Admiralty in July 1939 and become the C&C Mediterranean, having done his job as, finally, there was an agreement to send to the island 112 and 60 light AA guns, along with 24 searchlights and, most importantly, four squadrons of fighters. Thrown in for good measure were balloon barrages, aerial mines, and smoke producers. Still, the question lingered in London. Would even this be enough if Italy sent its battleships, fighters and bombers, and a few troop transport ships? If anyone said yes, it was with a lackluster whisper. And yet, a promise is not the same thing as sent. The above items were promised, but again, when Mussolini did not follow Hitler into the abyss after Poland was invaded, the defensive measures were not sent to Malta. Why? Because they were not needed. At least, not for the moment. For Il Duce, the taking of Albania seemed to whet his appetite. For now. And because Malta did not receive the promised items, the British Mediterranean fleet had no choice in April of 1939 to move itself from Malta to Alexandria, Egypt, to which Admiral Cunningham joined it the following April of 1940. He had stationed himself on Malta since November of 1939, hoping his presence would give the idea of sending the fighters to his headquarters more weight. But that had not happened. Still, the Maltese did receive the first part of something for the military there to use. In May of 1940, the locals unloaded the following. 145 bicycles, 400 tons of sandbags, 200 pigeons, 8 rabbits, and 15 soldiers. One can assume to take care of the pigeons. This left the island with 34 heavy AA guns to protect its three airfields and the non-existent planes, which was actually not entirely true. When Air Commodore F.H.M. Maynard arrived in January of 1940, he was informed that his command only consisted of a few ferry swordfish, old biplanes from the early 1930s that were now used to pull targets for the AA guns. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. 
And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. There have been people on Malta since about 5,900 BCE, and its central Mediterranean location has made it desirable by the people of Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Hence, it has had many rulers over the centuries, and each conqueror has left a bit of itself within the Maltese culture. Though where the name Malta comes from is unclear, its best guess is that it came from the Greeks who called the island Meili, or honey. But some contend the name originated with the Phoenicians, as Maleth, which means haven or port, was their label. Either way, the Romans followed suit, and thus the name was burned into the history books. The first people to live on Malta were from Sicily. Proximity has its rewards. But then the Phoenicians came along, around 800 BCE, and occupied it. Then came the Carthaginians, Again, proximity, but in 216 BCE, the Romans were the new master. But it was the Byzantines, or those of the Eastern Roman Empire, that took Sicily in 535 or 536 CE that helped themselves to Malta as well. Their rule lasted until 870 CE, when the Aglabids, an Arab dynasty that ruled modern-day Tunisia and southern Italy, took over. But it's around this time that the ownership of Malta becomes murky, as Arab Sicilians moved in large numbers to the island. But Muslim rule, in whatever form, ended in 1091, when the Normans from France took over. The Christians were firmly backed by 1249, and the island changed hands several more times, until Charles V of Spain gave the islands to the Order of Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, in perpetuity, which did not impress the Ottoman Empire as they lay siege for almost four months, from May to September 1565. The 500 or so knights, along with their 6,000 infantry troops, withstood the siege and held the island for Christianity. Still, there would be other attempts by Muslim Turks, but all to no avail. In 1798, Napoleon did take the islands, but the Maltese, with British help, forced the French out two years later. Indeed, it was the Maltese themselves that laid siege to their own capital, Valletta, currently controlled by the French, that ended their mastery. And it was then that the locals asked the British to assume sovereignty, but demanded a 
Declaration of Rights, which read in part, His Majesty has no right to cede these islands to any power. If he chooses to withdraw his protection and abandon his sovereignty, the right of electing another sovereign or of the governing of the islands belongs to us, the inhabitants and aborigines alone, and without control. The Treaty of Paris in 1814 made Malta an official British colony. But as long as the Protestant overlords did not interfere too deeply with daily life, the Catholic locals were content. Thus, it would be a British Maltese team defying the might of Italian and German naval and air power. Thus, when Great Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany on September 3, 1939, Mussolini wisely kept Italy out of the war, as his country was hardly ready to do battle with both Allied navies in the Mediterranean. But while Hitler blitzkrieged his way through Denmark, Norway, and finally Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France, the Maltese kept a worried eye towards Italy. Yet Air Commodore Maynard almost received good news in April of 1940, that is, near the end of the phony war. His executive assistant told him that there were, in crates, 18 sea gladiators, the RAF's last biplane. They were located at Calafrana on Malta's far southeast corner. They were quickly unboxed and assembled. Yet eight of them were already slotted for the carrier HMS Glorious. Thus, they flew away. That left ten, but they were to go to the HMS Eagle. But before they could take off, Maynard contacted ABC and asked if he could borrow them for a while. ABC, seeing a chance to finally do something for the islanders, said yes. Thus, on April 23, 1940, the Malta Fighter Flight was born. Now all Maynard needed were pilots. So he looked around for volunteers. Enough men said yes, so training got underway. But it seems that the Malta Fighter Flight had not so much been born as stillborn, and then reborn. Let me explain. Six days later, the remaining planes were ordered to be reboxed and readied to be picked up by the Navy. Yet the Navy said when they got there, oh, we don't need all of them. So Malta fighter flight was reborn, just reduced, now with six planes. Maynard got the planes reassembled and resumed training, but the training would be, as it were, on the job. There were to be two flights of three planes each, but only two planes would be allowed in the air at any one time. It was the best that they could do. So, just a mile west of the southeast corner of Malta, the fighters were based at Halfar Airfield. But, should the Italians decide to invade proper, somehow getting past Maynard's planes and the few torpedo motorboats and submarines, the latter the British still did not think highly of, and London had 12 subs in the Mediterranean, the Italians 115 at this point, there were, based on the island, just under 4,000 men of several battalions. Though the battalions and other units were under strength and needed an upgrade in their fighting equipment. And as Malta had about 125 miles or 201 kilometers of coastline, 
These troops would not be enough to guard against all landing locations and the three airfields that were all on the southern end of the island. With all of Malta's weak defenses, it would be nice, nay paramount, to have all concerned pulling on the same oar, i.e. with the island's leader, one governor and commander-in-chief, General Sir Charles Bonham Carter. And yet, in the spring of 1940, as Malta was about to move to center stage, Bonham Carter contracted pneumonia and had to be replaced. So in came the Scot and strong Protestant Lieutenant General William Doby, who was currently serving in Singapore. On May 10th, the day Hitler's panzers launched their attack in the West, ending the Sitzkrieg, Doby told the Maltese, We have ample resources of both men and material. This was an out-and-out lie. But when he added, With God's help, victory will most certainly be achieved, he was speaking the faithful Catholics' language. And on that same day, Prime Minister Chamberlain stepped down to be replaced by Winston Churchill. And though it took a browbeating and some time, Winston got his way. Malta would not be abandoned. On the same day Belgium surrendered, May 28th, Mussolini confidently told his staff that he intended to enter the war. The British picked up on this right away and prepared to make Italy's first day of the war a memorable one, in a bad way. And Governor Doby interned those Maltese who were pro-Italian, another solid move on his part. A few days later, Doby suggested to the locals that they move away from the coastlines, though he said nothing of the coming Italian declaration of war. But the people had taken his speech to heart. The Allies would win, so most stayed put. But with Malta lacking sufficient infantry, having only four antiquated fighters, they had lost two to damage, matched by four subs and a smattering of light surface vessels, along with Admiral Cunningham's outnumbered and outgunned fleet, with again older planes on his carriers that did not have adequate armor plating, Malta was truly exposed. And as Churchill pictured one day in the future, as he had during the Great War, of heading through the Balkans to end this war, Malta was vital. But it would be Mussolini's desire to take North Africa and threaten Egypt that would truly show how important the island and its 250,000 people were. On June 10, 1940, with France all but defeated, Mussolini bombastically declared war on Great Britain and France. Back in September, Italy was not ready for war in terms of resources, and truth be told, it was still not ready in June of 1940. But Il Duce realized if he waited too long, Hitler might have all of Europe wrapped up before the Pact of Steel could be made a reality. Thus, the plunge was made, sort of. Though he had 30 Italian divisions on the Alpine frontier between Italy and France, Mussolini held back his troops for 10 days. But even when they did move forward, the Italians did not get very far and suffered larger-than-expected casualties. Still, because of the Germans, Paris fell. The French government moved from city to city, only to have President Renault resign on June 16th, to be replaced 
by Marshal Philippe Baton, the new head of the Vichy government. The Franco-German armistice was signed on June 22, 1940. A year later, Hitler would launch another offensive that he hoped would have the same result. Besides the pro-Italian Maltese being detained, back in the UK, Churchill's government decided to intern all Italians between the ages of 16 and 70 who had lived in Britain for less than 20 years. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. With Italy declaring war on June 10th, the next day, all military personnel on Malta were ordered to stand to, or stand to arms, i.e., be ready for anything, 15 minutes earlier than normal. Hence, at 4.15 a.m., the ground troops, pilots, and AA batteries were on alert. Then again, few of them, if any, had actually been in a shooting war, so their readiness was based on theory, and that theory was about to be tested. Just before 7 a.m., C Company of the 2nd Battalion, Queen's Own Royal West Kent Regiment, was already at it, improving their defensive works near the Marsa racetrack at the bottom of the Grand Harbor, a.k.a. the Valletta Port. Again, Valletta is the island's capital, along the island's northeast coast. Just then, the area's sirens began to build up to a worrying scream. The men of C Company ran and dove into their slit trenches. It was probably at this time that some of the younger men, this being their first attack, wondered, was this trench deep enough? How close would the bombs come? How close could they come and I still survive? All would be answered in time. A few minutes later, explosions could be heard, but relief followed hard upon the fast-rising fear as the men lying in their trenches realized the explosions and rising smoke was to their south. Somebody was getting it good, but not them. Indeed, the receiver of this Italian air attack was the Halfar airfield in the southeast corner, where Commodore Maynard had started up his fighter flight. A few minutes after this, more explosions caused the men of C Company at the racetrack to turn their heads to the north. There, immediately north of the Grand Harbor and the capital Valletta, Italian bombers, coming in at 14,000 feet, were attacking the port facilities. A direct hit landed on the eastern side of the most extended part of Fort St. Elmo, above Valletta. Established in 1417, the jutting end of the Skibarius Peninsula was reinforced by the Order of St. John in 1553, which included better towers, and a wall, as it was meant to protect against enemy ships coming into the harbor, but not Italian planes flying over, dropping ordnance. By the time the Italians left, six of the Royal Malta artillery were dead, including a 16-year-old telephonist. Many structures around them lay in ruins, and voices started crying out for help. 
As for Commodore Maynard's air warriors, they had been ready to deflect any air attacks from 6.30 a.m. onwards. But they should have calculated the slow climbing rate of the gladiators and moved up that time another 15 minutes or more. As for Flight Lieutenant George Burgess, he was the least ready, currently using the lavatory, when the enemy bombers flew over Grand Harbor to drop their bombs. The sirens throughout the island erupted, as did Burgess, off his seat. A few minutes later, he was taking off. The problem was, by the time he and his comrades were heading north and climbing to attack height, the Italians were already heading home which is when the other enemy flight bombed Howfar's airfield, Burgess's home base. Turning around, the British planes were too late there as well. Fortunately, the Italians did not hit anything of value. Perhaps the AA guns there did a better job than they thought. But as the enemy planes were departing from the bottom southeast corner of Malta, this allowed Burgess alone to catch up to the last bomber heading away. Having never fired his guns at a real target, he estimated the proper distance to be when his guns went off, and that's when he found out that he was still too far away. But hearing Burgess's guns, the Italian pilot simply poured on the gas and left the young man far behind. The gladiator simply did not have the speed to pursue the more modern Italian bomber. Not 30 minutes later, the all-clear was sounded, which did not stop the long lines of refugees heading away from the capital and other populated coastal areas. In fact, within days of the first bombing, some 100,000 Maltese would leave the Valletta area for a more interior location. Exactly where would they stay? That would be worked out upon arrival. That afternoon, the second of three air raids got underway, not that those on the ground could know this. That morning, how far airfield had been hit on the island's southeast corner. Relative to that airfield, if one drew a straight line going northwest from how far, about four miles along that line, you'll come into the Luca airfield, putting it just under two miles due south of the Marsa racecourse and polo field. Continuing that line in a northwesterly direction from the Luca airfield, another five miles away, you would hit the last airfield, Takali, placing it roughly in the center of the island. It was these two upper airfields that were hit that afternoon. And whether it was incompetence or intentional, when Luca was hit, being only a mile or so away from Marsa, C Company at the racecourse got a closer view of a bombing raid, the slit trenches were re-entered. After the Italians left, dust hung in the air for hours as no strong breeze was around to clear the skies above the horse-focused entertainment area. But it was the late afternoon that brought the heaviest bombardment. Again, the grand harbor around the capital was targeted with most of the bombs falling on the southern shoreline of that waterway. The AA guns were blasting away, to be sure, but no one reported seeing any enemy plane falling from the sky. As the attackers left, some 22 people around the capital were dead, with some 200 buildings now being unlivable. 
This was adding on to the first casualties of that morning. A Maltese mother and her two young sons, ages four and five. Supporting the possibility that Italy's attack on Malta had been rather haphazard, the next day, June 12th, the only Italian plane the people of Malta saw was a lone reconnaissance aircraft. Still, a gladiator was sent up and managed to shoot down the would-be spy. The Italians were also learning on the job. On June 13th, the sirens went off four times that day, but only two air attacks materialized. The first at Calafrana on the southeast corner, just east of the Halfar airfield, which killed two and wounded four more. When the second raid came, up went the gladiator biplanes. These three defenders, named Faith, Hope, and Charity, harassed the would-be bombers, to the point that they dropped their ordnance prematurely. Some landed on the far northwest corner of the island at Maliha, but some of their bombs went into the sea. But it would be the next day, June 14th, that Rome became serious, either about forcing the island to capitulate or guaranteeing that it would not be used to launch an attack by air or sea against Italy by launching eight bombing raids that day, covered by fighter escorts and using a mixture of incendiaries and high-explosive bombs. The war had finally come to Malta. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, um, like me, I hope a lot of you are happy to be back in the uh, European theater. Um, we're going to use Malta to get around the Mediterranean, North Africa, and, and go from there, then hit Russia and go back to Asia. So, uh, we'll just we'll stick with this um, the Mediterranean for a while. So, I just wanted to say hello to the newest members and those who have donated, and I got a couple emails that I got. Um, as far as the newest members, welcome aboard to Peter Allen from Anna Cortez, Washington, Henry Youngberg from Waseca, Minnesota. Hope I got that right, Henry. Ernesto Rodriguez from Waitsfield, Vermont. Richard uh, Wells from Longmont, Colorado. And Brett Edwards from Daharuk, New South Wales in Australia. Brett, hope I got that right. As far as donations, there's uh, Asher Kennan. Lee Grennan, I hope I got those right, uh, Jack Hines, who has started, uh, I don't know, well, he didn't start this, but I've noticed a trend lately is that somebody will donate monthly like it's a membership, but it's just like a buck or two, but they do it each month just to support the show. So Jack and everybody else who's done that, I really do appreciate it. Um, I got an email from a Roy Burnham. He's a member and he's and he, I think he has his own business and he's been listening to the podcast during his long drives uh, around our country in the United States. Um, Roy, I don't know if I would want my voice in my head um, driving for a long distance, but if you can make it work, good for you. Uh, there's also an email from a Brad Wolf. He liked the Doolittle series. He actually flew in a B-25 at an air show. And the best thing about Brad is that he misses my daughters on the commercials uh, like the old times. If you've been with me long enough, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll try to bring them back in the future. The... Um, the restrictions are a little tighter than they used to be. I used to be able to have a lot of fun with it, but um, I am glad you reminded me of that, Brad. I'll see if I can do something in the future. So again, we'll use Malta to jump around North Africa, maybe the Middle East, and then we'll get back to Russia, and we'll just kind of 
bring it all together, and we'll just see how it goes. And so, again, very happy to be back in the European theater, and I will see you soon with the next episode. Take care, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>